do you believe in God? It's in us. America's milkiest podcast, The Pod People. I'm Matisse Van Rossum, and all I want to do is ride my motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ben Sheets, the Milk King. Ooh. <laughs> The milking milk king? Ooh, I don't, you can I call don't me that. milk daddy. The milk oh, king. No, I won't. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Cleveland Mosier, and I'm at war with women. <laughs> <laughs> and we are graced by two fantastic guests tonight. Ladies, would y'all care to introduce yourselves? Um, I guess it depends on who you're asking first, but this is it's you. your friend, Katie. From the Lambly Optic, not currently active blog, bringing you the best in. <laughs> yep. <laughs> did that come through okay? It Is sure it? did. Katie, <laughs> I don't know how to follow that. And last but certainly not least, <laughs> this is guest Sarah. And hello, guest Sarah. Hello, I am Isabel Ajani with the green eyes. Oh, <laughs> green eyed one. Well, uh, this week we're talking about a very special film, a very dear film. We're going to be talking about Marriage Story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, I mean, <laughs> basically. No, uh, we have gathered uh, a, a nice big group of us with our uh, returning guests, Sarah and Katie, to talk about a, uh, a very interesting film. I wasn't lying when I said it was special, but we're going to be talking about the 1981 film Possession, not to be confused with Possessor. Uh, directed, or Possessed. Or Possessed. Written and directed by Andre Zulowski, and starring Isabella Johnny and Sam Neill. And, uh, hoo boy! That's all I have to say about this one. Night, folks! <laughs> <laughs> I, I just kind of want to go around and get some general first impressions. Uh, well, all of us have seen this one before, except for our little baby Cleveland. It's me! As usual. This is a, a very dense, uh, kind of ambiguous, obscure, artsy horror film? On its surface, maybe. Oh, uh, it, expound upon that. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. This is what's going on when you got something like Possession on the table. 1981, Berlin, The Wall. And you've got Andrzej Zulowski, Polish director, working in France because he's been thrown out of Poland. Shulowski got his start as a filmmaker working under Andrzej Wadzia. And once Zulowski's coming up, so he's born in 1940, he lives through the war, his, his family relocates to France. He starts his film career and he's in Poland. But then he makes this film, The Devil, that is banned for 16 years in Poland in 72. And this guy just can't help himself. Like, he's just, he, he can't help but push the buttons and the boundaries of the, the position that he's in. And his response to this is to say, fuck Poland, I'm going to France, I'm going to make some films in France. He makes a successful film, and then the Poles invite him back, and he makes On the Silver Globe, which isn't released until 10 years later. 
The polls came down hard on Zulowski because they're experimenting with film that that comments on morality, while Zulowski is like going to the edges of what can be known and not known. And so he he takes on the mask of science fiction, and he makes this epic, this extremely expensive epic in Poland, and they shut it down before it can even be finished. I can't imagine the trauma of that, being a director, going into... He, he's adapting his granduncle's Lunar Trilogy. And Jerzy Zulowski was who inspired the writer of Solaris. So there's, oh. there's this whole intellectual terrain that's, that's being dug up, like soil for possession. So once you get to possession in 81, it's like, Zulowski's trying to reconcile all these different worlds, and that's why he sets it in Berlin at the wall, where it's this clash of like being able to go to the Western Cafe and then running through these very like proto brutalist streets that are just like drained of all color. I like the fact that you're listening to me say all this and it doesn't bring anything to the film whatsoever. <laughs> I feel like the appropriate way to watch the film is really to just let it find you and not know anything about it before you go into it. I don't necessarily think that it would take away from it to know more about it going in, but to me, there's something that's so deeply embedded as the image that there's no amount of background or production history that's going to make it any better than it already is. Much well, of the magic I found in this movie was, like, discovery. Yeah. Like, was that, like, exploration of the events taking place. And it is so mesmerizing that not knowing anything about this film apart from the title, which conjures a lot of imagery that isn't necessarily portrayed in the film either. Uh, my expectations were primed in a very different way. And that that discovery into this like the strange unknown world and these like very unusual events that were occurring like through the mundane, you know, like through this like this this breakup were just set aside by how unusual the events I was watching were. Even though it was clear that something was wrong, I was never like on the edge of my seat waiting to see what the wrongness was at the heart of this movie because the ride itself was so captivating. Like, I, w I was just like so in the moment in this movie and mm -hmm. in a film where you have no idea like what is coming next. In a, in a movie where you're just thrown into these wild uncharted waters and even still to just be so caught up in what is happening to not worry about it. Like to just be brought along for the ride and be very happy to be there was awesome for me. Like, I want to just run it again. Well, <laughs> one of the reasons I'm so glad we have Katie and Sarah on is this is a movie I love dearly, but I always have a really hard time talking about it in depth because I feel like it is such an experiential movie that, you know, you can express some of it in words, but you can't get at kind of the ecstatic core of right. what the film is. Like you, you can, can say it's a razor head in color, but I, I mean, it's not untrue, but it's not the truth of the movie. Exactly. The truth of the movie only comes from a viewer's relationship with it. And I love that because it feels like it feels like that makes it an honest work of art. Like, there's not pretense. 
it's someone desperately trying to say something true without misrepresenting answers to questions that can't be answered. Well, one of my favorite quotes on film is from Werner Herzog. He's actually describing documentaries, but at a higher level, he's describing cinema as a whole. And the idea is, you know, there's the photographer's truth or the accountant's truth is what he calls it. (laughs) And then there's the ecstatic truth, you know, Mm. there's the truth beyond just what you can directly express in words or accounts. And I think that in a nutshell is perfectly this movie because you know you can describe the details I can of a tell lot you of... it's a 2.4 million dollar budget what does that tell you <laughs> exactly you can describe a lot of the aspects of this movie but you're not getting at kind of the raw core the feeling the vibe this movie gives um, End of episode. Yeah, which movie is, again, <laughs> why it's so hard to talk this about. This movie's just vibing. <laughs> it's true. It's a vibing um, movie. <laughs> over, when I was home in Alabama over the Christmas holiday, I tried to describe this movie to my mom, who had never seen it before. And I feel like I hit the bit, the main plot points and like kind of was able to express like why it's a great movie. But it's still ended up feeling really reductive because like it Mm. is hard to really capture a lot of the moments in this movie in a way that really does them justice it's it's like explaining a joke before you've heard the joke oh yeah that's a great analogy Like yeah, like like watch the movie first. Like I yeah, by the, all please. please. <laughs> I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't want to hear like proceed no that further explains. until you find some access to mm-hmm. Andrzej Zulowski. Uh So there was a redistribution of this movie that happened fairly recently, not yesterday, but Possession lived through a period where. Home video was making it so that you could have some continuity, especially of cult titles. And because Jalowski, this was his only English film, and I think that, not that non-English films can't live in that circuit, because they can, but I think that that probably helped it. I think that Isabella Johnny and Sam Neill being part of it probably helped it. And I think that it's the kind of film that stays in the canon that way, in the non-canonical way, because it has to live at the edges for now. It's almost like the inversion of reality. It's like seeing a mirror from the inside out, like being an unobserved observer, because you end up having to occupy an entire dwelling place. And I think a lot of that comes from the camera work. There's this incredible handheld camera, and I thought it was so interesting to learn about a little bit about the shooting because Zulowski worked with the same camera operator for On the Silver Globe, and that was started in 77. It got shut down by the Polish government and wasn't finished until 87. So there's this long period of time he hasn't been able to complete this film the the negatives are sitting in in hotels and people's houses just you know reels daniel bird who 
was instrumental in giving, getting a lot of Zulowski's work redistributed, uh, some of it restored because, you know, and, and finished in Silver Globe's case. So there was a retrospective, and that was how a lot of people got access to on the Silver Globe. It wasn't a readily accessible. There was like a shitty DVD transfer of it floating around for a while. Well, I remember this movie it was somewhat recently restored because I remember when I first saw it in high school, it was just the quality was kind of shit, honestly. It was like a DVD Mm-hmm. quality but it was one of those lo-fi middling restorations where it's just like oh i want to see more detail and mm. because especially with this film it lives in the details you know the griminess of the floors the the <laughs> wide angle lenses showing you every minute detail and just Completely immersive. Yeah. Well, this this film is incredibly visceral and physical. And I think a lot of that comes from both the camera movement as well as the detail. I think the production design with the detail of seeing the literal carnage in the wake of both of these characters. You know, there's just messes everywhere, all over the floor. Things are being thrown and (laughs) thrown about everywhere. Have you ever seen a movie where people just scream for two hours wordlessly? (laughs) We have. We have. We just did. We just watched it. And it's great. It's so good. It's so so liberating to hear people scream like this. I can't tell you you how oh my god it's like it's the dream of being able to live through that activity vicariously at some level for me like the visceral nature of these performances and it was it's interesting Zulowski when he was working with actors apparently went to Haiti for a while and observed people engaged in like voodoo ritual and was studying some experimental theater and was like I'm gonna put my actors in a trance especially my actresses because they have to be liberated from themselves So he's got this very particular way of working with his actors. And I felt like when I learned that, I was like, oh, my God, that is the only way you could make that happen on screen. Like, it's so believable, even though it's over the top. And I feel like it it's almost like it takes the beauty of something like an expressionist Nick Cage performance and it pushes it into the realm of like, this is someone's genuine, serious beautifully black comedic at the same time as being a horror film. This is somebody's, like, pearl they've been uh, elucidating in their guts for the entirety of their existence. Like, this is the beautiful pearl that ends up outside of Zulowski. And I feel really humbled to be in a world where people have the courage to do that sometimes. Because I feel like sometimes it's really difficult to feel like that much of of your truth is worth being in the world. Is it true that, like, a lot of the script for this film was inspired by, like, Zulowski's own, like, terrible divorce? Well, that was definitely where the idea came from. It came from the idea of his coming home to Poland from being abroad and finding his son alone in the apartment and his wife just elsewhere. So there's like this kernel of a mundane, everyday, haphazard 
crisis moment. So that forms the core, but then he allegorizes it. He he right. intentionally works with the material. He's collaborating with another screenwriter, um, actually a guy out of New York City called uh, Frederick Tudin. And Tudin, like, he's working with Zulowski's 20-page synopsis. And they're collaborating to pull out this specific world that's coming out of Berlin around the wall and has that autobiographical tinge. But and I feel like in order to feel comfortable with something like that, when it's that personal, some greater structure gets built on top of it. So Zulowski's talking about it like an adult fairy tale. And I think that's really appropriate. The way the dialogue is structured, the way it's almost like walking into a ruin. Even though it has a kind of kinetic or chaotic feel, it still stays very much almost like congealed. Like it's a narrative that is cohesive. Mm -hmm. it, it is its own organism. There's, there's not an excess of what is absolutely necessary. And that's intentional. Like he's coming at it as a writer who's not just writing screenplays. Zulowski wrote like 20 or 30 books in his lifetime, none of which have been uh, translated to English. Maybe Daniel Bird will do us that kindness too. I mean, this guy is is lifting heavyweight, making Zulowski still relevant in in the West. And I feel like when films like this happen, they're rarely ever going to happen in a a situation where they're going to be as overwhelmingly lauded and embraced as they deserve to be. It's almost like they are too confrontational about what's true. So that people experience it and and there's no way to anticipate what the reaction will be because it has to happen in the moment. There's not a, a preconceived experience that will model it for you. It is cinema at its maybe most free. Well, I think one interesting part of that is the portrayal of the characters. You know, it's very stilted and... Uh, exaggerated and almost alien and the the physicality of the movement in to the point where it almost becomes dance-like the zero to a hundred nature of uh, talking to screaming um, all this different stuff but the the characters themselves are very complex and empathetic and interesting you know i think my favorite character for example is the the european character <laughs> which, you uh, mean heinrich yeah, yeah. heinrich <laughs> 10 out of 10 he's yeah. the most <laughs> european <laughs> character put to screen the quintessential european yeah. <laughs> oh my god the accent it made me laugh this time because Everything he Everything says, he says. Is yeah. hilarious. <laughs> you really could quote his accent. entire dialogue but, yeah. and do the accent, and, and he you only would be wears a hit at parties. He wears shirts with only the very bottom button, the, button like the, the deepest V. Like it's just his whole torso out. He's just like a new age, like hippy dippy, like weird tantric sex German. It was guy. totally intentional. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really it's, an intentional film. It reminds me of Tim Robbins' character in Half Fidelity, if anybody's seen that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so well summed up, too. Like, it's a punchline where, like, Sam Neill is in the house with Bob, his son, and he hears a knock at the door. And he goes to the door and opens it. 
And instead of, like, Heinrich just standing there, Heinrich is posed on the <laughs> stairs. Yeah. Like, waiting to speak to him. Like, like he had to prepare himself. Yeah. Like, yeah, and, like, be... Yeah, he goes to knock and yeah. sits back. Right. Like, like you know he was up at some point to knock the door, but he, he couldn't be presented Yeah, he way. stepped back and struck so, a pose. So he could be seen lounging. What a champ. Well, what, a, what an amazing... He's such, wow. he's such an interesting character because, like, he is... As far as Sam Neill is concerned for a while, like, the guy that is destroying his marriage. You know, like, he knows there's another man that Isabella Johnny has been seeing, and, like, yes, she was seeing Heinrich for a while, but we know that that's no longer the case, or we learn that that's no longer the case. But when he's first introduced, it's like... This is the guy. <laughs> this is the guy who is tearing my who's tearing my family apart, who's ruining my life, who has stolen my wife. It's this motherfucker. Well, you want to talk about ballet. That scene mm, is yeah. out of this world because like it it occurs a good 30 40 minutes into the film. Like we're we've we've just been subjected to the the all of the hardship between the two and we haven't seen this other man right you know like who is the other man is it's just the, been the sam neil and isabella johnny screaming at each other and throwing and, chairs and, and, throwing and, throwing and having like the flu mm. uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and also like sam neil like hears that voice on the phone that says like and that is not that is not heinrich's voice it's either not. And, oh, oh. and we have all these expectations like presented to us right? i wonder if it's sam neil's voice Oh my god. Oh, if. Ooh, I bet it is. Is that not really it sexy? It's gotta be. I yeah. feel like that's Honestly, really though, sexy. Right? But, oh my god. So, um. <laughs> uh, but, uh. Also, he, Sam Neill. Can I just. Oh, oh my, my god. god. Yeah, this movie. Wow. Uh, sorry, everybody. This I movie have to just is. Take just take a breath for a moment. Whew, yeah, this whole movie. But, uh, when he, he goes out to the confrontation, it just. The energy between Sam Neill's character and, and, and Heinrich is is just amazing because Samuel is so angry. He's just unbelievably angry. We've had his Tommy Wiseau moment of him in bed, like, thrashing around. Well, yeah, when she first leaves, it's like he's withdrawing from, like, Mm -hmm. heroin. Yeah. Like, he spends three weeks in bed, like, It is the scene from the room, but with master, like, with, like, masterful acting. But I'd love a side-by-side of, like, that scene with Sam Neill and, like, Tommy Wiseau. Rubbing the dress on his dress. Yeah, like... (laughs) Because <laughs> it's the same scene. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's the same scene. It's just fun is executed way better. But so anyway, yeah, like he's gone through all this hardship, and he's he just has all this rage in him, and he's he's so angry, and uh, it's it's pent up. And Heinrich is is so free spirited and like openly sexual and. And on European. taking a bunch of drugs, oh, uh, yeah, talking oh, yeah. about like seeing the face of God through like taking psychedelics and yeah. having sex. Yeah, like, he's embraced a universal consciousness. God. Yeah, and so he and he just accepted her exactly as she is. Right. Which, Except later, he obviously does not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so the way that he just 
takes in and absorbs Sam Neill's like energy and hatred is amazing. <laughs> so like funny, the like every time scene, that Samuel throws like, him away, like he goes up to like schools. hug and hold him. It's a dance. That scene itself like is ballet, especially by the end of it, because from the start, Sam Neill is exhausted and exhaustion is a great way to simulate ballet because of like the way that like bodies have to, you have to use that extra energy and force and momentum to mm. pull yourself to, 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 dr- and it, it dramatizes your movements and makes them like stage worthy. So he's exhausted to begin with, but then he fights, you know, he tries to, like, punch or what, like, it was, I was yeah, so, he, such he a tries, blur for he me. he tries to hit him, and Heinrich does, like, some judo <laughs> shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, he pulls him around, like, in an embrace, and again, and it's, he, like, it's, like, chop, like, chops him, maybe <laughs> he's chops like, him on the shoulders. I feel like that's maybe a Baudelaire thing, the dandy that Stanley Cavell talks about, where it's, like, just a guy and he's kind of like the ultimate bourgeois free guy and Heinrich's such like he's still living with his mom and he's yeah. just <laughs> she puts fresh sheets on his bed so he can yeah. so that so he can make sweet yeah. love yeah. to Anna <laughs> like it comes up in the context of him like it's like Sam Neill going fucking my wife in his bed and she's like yes I just put new sheets on so well I love when he first he, he first goes to Heinrich's apartment and like the mother comes in and he's like she, like he, how are we still talking about the same film it's like he, she she lives here with you he's like yes it's like even when you're in bed fucking my wife he's like but of course but of- <laughs> it's like, yeah, mom's in the other room. Yeah. Just what doing a little bit of knitting. Just some crochet. Yeah. Oh my god. Incredible. In fucking incredible. Yeah. When you said it earlier that it's like ballet, like some of the movement is, I really, in that fight scene, I really noticed just the physicality between male characters in the movie was, was some something that just drew my attention because there's so much kind of intimate touch sometimes aggressive and sometimes not but between male characters like more so than i than i see in most movies there's a a lot of touch between heinrich and sam neill's character and then there's some between him and the the detective when they're standing under like an overpass i think and sam neill yeah grabs his hand as they're shaking them and he holds them very close yeah like to his heart Mm mm-hmm I think it, for me, it betrays a sensitivity of the director. I feel like these are real parts of the man whose vision this is. Like, these are real, genuine impulses that come from him. Like, the the desire to embrace and to touch and to engage in that sense. Because it really is a tactile film. That's why I would compare it to something like Eraserhead, where... At the same time that you get this storytelling camera, like it's not, it's not a shaky cam. It's handheld, but it's not shaky. It's not trying to draw attention to the fact that what you're watching is a film. It really has the effect of just like being able to move your mind to the best possible point to watch what's happening. You get what feels like the whole context, like you get the whole room, you get the whole square, you get seemingly the whole. There's a few elements that are somewhat obscured, but even the creature is divulged to you as an audience. And I I respect that. I also feel like because they're using practical effects, it doesn't age 
this film was made in 81. You're going to be able, if cinema is still a thing, you're going to be able to watch this film in 2080 and it's not going to be any less relevant. There's not going to be anything so radically different about it that you can't put yourself in the lens. The cuckolding story is timeless. Oh, <laughs> well, so is the infinite sexual desire story. I mean, you know, <laughs> but of course. <laughs> and the astral horrors that it spawns. <laughs> Whether it is, you know, like uh, possession or the, the infamous, uh, you know, hoverboard cuckolding video on Pornhub, you know, like either way, hoverboard. they are the same. Jesus. They are the same. You know, they are timeless. It's true. It's, it's, it is a tale as old as time. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, there's always been pornography, so... There haven't always been hoverboards, but that's <laughs> <laughs> Circling back a little bit, we talked a little bit about how visceral and kinetic this film is. And I think it's one of the most kinetic films out there. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because... I whenever I think of kinetic filmmaking, this is a very lowbrow reference, but I always think of Crank Two, High Voltage. Hell yes, because it is pure slap, pure kinetic yeah. action. You know, directors were on rollerblades the whole time shooting it. Oh, awesome. and this movie f- finds such a brilliant balance of having such a pure kinetic, chaotic energy in the camera work in the performances while still bringing kind of the art house levity to it. And I think that's such an impressive feat. It's a tightrope walk. Um, Because, like, in the same respect with the monster, you know, you are dealing with kind of a larger-than-life creature that, if not done properly, is just exploitation, goofy, horror, creature feature type of stuff, but it's elevated because Zulowski knows what he's doing and is very mindful in his his moves. Yeah, they end up seeming like just essential elements of the story he's telling instead of things that are being exploited. Yeah, so I, I really liked that you knew, thank you for knowing, that this was um, part of his personal story, like that it had a, a kernel of truth, because I had to wonder if he had been through the dissolution of a relationship um, that was parallel, having been through that myself. It is such a visceral, like experiential representation of what that is like. That you could never describe in words. I can't explain how young and hot Shulowski was when he was making this film. (laughs) I can't. His first wife designed the poster for the film. I think must have been his second wife who starred in his first two Polish films. That it was his relationship with her that that kernel of truth came from. Because she was the mother of his son. And so that that was the moment where, you know, he's he's working with someone who's been a creative collaborator and he shows up and she's got other shit on her mind other than raising their son. And I think that's a lot of the anxiety of the film, too. Sam Neill's character, Mark, going, why isn't this your top priority? And he's also got when the teacher character shows up. He just immediately expects her to take over mm-hmm. these, like, like biological the necessities of, yeah. of 
the raising of his progeny. It's like, well, this is what you're there for. Why aren't you satisfied being there for that? And I feel like there would be a lot of men out there that would watch this film and be like, I'm Sam Neill, and that bitch is crazy. Yeah, no. I am always trying to fit my consciousness in with every character, but I can absolutely go where Isabella Johnny goes. And I I feel like everyone ought to be able to go to those poles of like where both of them can, go, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. just please yeah. stay. I, I I can't be me. I can't be happy unless you are here, no matter how miserable this is. And let me guilt you into staying. Mm-hmm. Of course, we do this, and then on her end, just like I can't. I'm checking out. I've got to find something else that's going to bring me pleasure. You aren't doing anything for me. I want to escape. I want to escape. I'm going to escape. My faith in everything is in question and like I've got a slimy things. sex beast I'm cultivating. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't have to, I don't have and time I have for to this. Protect it with right. everything in me. Yes. I also thought she has about, to mother it. Yeah. I thought about how some evolutionists go with the idea that change happens incrementally over time and there are random mutations and it's only vast amounts of time and vast accumulations that anything could change into another species. But my feeling is like there is some point in the hominid line where a female of the species gave birth to a thing that was not her species, like gave birth to a new creature and that there are probably like more than one of the the it's feminine that. variety that do it around the same time. Mm-hmm. And that bringing of the new thing has to have some element of a primordial horror. So that was what I thought about this time. Like, is cinema now in a position to anticipate and try to imagine what new thing is going to come out of people? And is it a sex monster? Because <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> Damn, here I was. Damn. You were close. You just had a couple extra letters. Sex man. Oh my god. I was right all along. This is what Augustine was all about, was trying to keep us from our destiny. One uh, one aspect that I I, I love is uh, how fractal this film is Mm -hmm. uh how uh, there are certain like patterns that come up and play uh visually uh i'll start visually like like there's a lot in the dialogue as well but there's there's so much of it it's so loud and violent it's it's hard to retain it uh it's hard for me to retain it but like one cool pattern or or element was uh going back to that same scene with sam neill and the 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 second detective who you know we is revealed as a partner um physically there's a misinterpretation there. And correct me if I'm wrong, this was my first viewing, but the impression I was under is Sam Neill clutches his hands, clutches the detective's hands to his chest, and he holds them close, and he's, he's like, doing this, like, drum beat with them as he's talking to him, because he's just, he's so manic, and he's so gone, um, and he's so, I mean, fucked up, that, you know, he just finds himself doing these patterns. It's purely from a, a point of darkness and uh, manipulation and so many other things. But the detective reads it as a faction. And that's why, in 1980, this detective felt comfortable outing himself. 
and because he misinterpreted that as like something intimacy, almost, almost as a you know like his affection says, "Oh, you're a little like me. That man's my partner," and he felt comfortable saying that to him. And I don't know, maybe maybe I was like reading into that too deeply or or whatnot, but like it it reminds me of so many other moments in the film, which is I I, I think it's most of the dialogue that almost every scene felt like two people having two different conversations at each other. Mm-hmm. Like, that so much of the dialogue was never received by the other person. Yes. And that they were just, they were having one conversation, speaking. They were talking at, at each, each other, other like a sounding other, yeah. board. And then, you know, the other person was saying what they needed to say. And no, there's no reception. No one's hearing anything. And it's just, the, the and yeah. I felt that same way about that sequence as well, where it was just a complete misinterpretation of what was going on. Like, and I, I, I love that. I think that speaks really beautifully to part of what is so representative about like the dissolution of an intimate relationship in the way this film depicts relationships, like how two people can have two completely different ideas of what's going on in any given moment. And then not realize how much of a distinction there is between the two perceptions of reality until it comes to like a breaking point. And then this is almost like just watching all of that play out, especially my favorite example of what you're talking about is the scene in the kitchen where she's grinding meat and he's like asking her questions and she's just physically responding and he's not looking at her. Um, so he isn't even getting the responses. Yeah, she's so nodding and shaking her head, but <laughs> as the he viewer, has his it, back turned. It, it yeah. is driving me up the wall in, in all the best ways. She's she is answering your questions, but you're not looking. And is it even necessary that he look that he know the answers, right? Because does he already know them, or does he at least think yeah, that he does? That's, yeah. that's the right? impression that I get that he does that it he matter? knows. Yeah, right. he knows those. Does it? Oh, of course. Yeah. So and there's course, this like, point uh, in the in in watching it where you have to say like, does it even matter? Because yeah, I think you do get frustrated naturally and want him to look, and then you're like, I don't know the if it matters. Is that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's so true. It was interesting to me too. Like in that scene, he said, "Are you afraid I won't like you?" And she's like, "Yes." Like that was the one thing that she agreed that she feared, yeah. and that theme came up again when he was talking to Heinrich and was like, "I like you now." Right. And it's this interesting idea to apply to adult relationships, right? Where um, everything is so serious and explosive and like mortal and deadly. And, and, and it's just at some level sort of still important whether or not people feel liked. Other people's opinions of you still matter. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do I feel like you like me? Right. Well, I mean, I think that that that's kind of like the crux of the whole movie is that like there's so much riding on possessing the other person and in so doing like you have to possess their love as well, their admiration, you know, they have to like you. And it's like, why don't you why don't you like me anymore? Like that's yeah, that's, that's great Sam Neill's whole thing is like yes. what he comes like home. You know, he's been about it, he's been away. You know, working. You know, for for months or years, and like only comes home to visit, and then comes back and is like, well, what 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 happened? Why don't you fucking like me anymore? You know, like it's like, well, you've been absent. 
you know? But now it's her turn to be absent. And yep. she's, like, literally abandoning their their son, you know? And she at some point kind of says, like, I have no faith left yeah. in your presence, basically, is kind of how I read that. Or, like, your reliability. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then faith becomes such a a, a big theme later on when she starts I love that monologue. talking about sister faith and sister chance i loved that that was heinrich's movie i don't know if you noticed yeah. when it went to those shots and you see heinrich looking at himself in the mirror mm-hmm. like his hair is still dark so you can tell it's a little while ago like probably when their relationship started and i also love that it had that element of her that actually being a dancer like she's Mm. teaching a ballet class yeah and then it cuts to that incredible monologue i remember when i was auditioning to get into acting school and i only had like neil simon you know you'd buy these um these books of like 101 monologues i feel like why the fuck didn't i have this movie <laughs> why didn't i that why didn't i have that i would have gotten into acting school <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, can anybody do that like Isabella? No, Johnny, absolutely that's, that's not. Like, but apparently, capture? apparently, this film is widely regarded in a positive sense in France, and that actors and actresses do look to it as a source of inspiration. I mean, yeah. not surprised. Okay. Well, that absolutely phenomenal performances, yeah, yeah from that everybody. Monologue is so incredible, but it's paired with that ballet sequence of. Her very forcefully instructing this poor girl uh, into this ballet position until she's kind of gutturally screaming. Yeah. And it's such a striking sequence. Mm. And it's one of those sequences from this movie that stick with me even years after I've seen this. Just because it it's so raw. It's such a simple concept in that you know you're holding a position and you're holding it and holding it until you can't stand it anymore and i think that at its core is the concept of this film yeah. you know it's holding and holding until you can't anymore until and it, then when you it let go it just like becomes frantic and yeah. chaotic yeah exactly like that the scene where she comes in to get um, the kids' stuff together, and she's just pulling stuff out, and it's just completely and putting chaos. putting like clothes in the refrigerator. Yes, yes, it reminds me of what like what might flow through you if you held a position too long. Just total chaos. Mm. And how fitting that our backdrop is the Berlin Wall. Just holding that same position, like holding that same position. Well, and also the idea of like building a wall between two halves of the same hole, you know? Like, that wall goes up between them, and, like, multiple of the settings in this movie are, like, right next to the Berlin Wall. Like, their apartment, the wall is outside the window. Mm -hmm. The apartment where she's keeping the sex monster, right next to the wall in a different part of the city. Like, the wall is just constantly looming over everything in this movie. And it's great, especially, like, now, uh, I'm, I'm a little bad. I've, I've seen the remake of Suspiria, but I've not seen the original yet, and uh, it's very high on my list. But uh, how Suspiria presents the wall as a line, 
and you know like this is a, a more literal interpretation like of it being like a wall and it, it's cool like seeing both these films are both very very bleak very dour very dark that um, makes me think of a hundred foster which one uh hundred foster quote uh the straight line is godless and immoral that's what that makes me think of that bitter edge that source of ultimate conflict and butting heads and that split that like confirmed split of their being able the 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 possibility of there being two radically different worlds so close to one another and and almost that form their identity in contrast to one another that it's the conflict itself yeah. that forms the image to fracture and refract one way or another, like an equal and opposite reaction, except think something with a longitudinal axis to use my professor Greg Flaxman's <laughs> Well, I, I think what's brilliant about that is you have kind of a physical portrayal of that in isabella johnny's dual roles right mm. so anna just leaves yes. a trail of carnage and messiness and chaos but then the wake. alien cleans it all up did you notice exactly. how spotless yeah. the apartment is by exactly. the end of the, the film school teacher the school teacher is we see her cleaning the apartment and it's one of the only times in this film where you see a clean environment mm -hmm. and it's such a juxtaposition that it's so clear that he is trying to make a point in this duality and i'd love to hear some more reads of your guys's on the dual role thing because it's one of those concepts in this film that i think is very literal in kind of the the berlin wall uh, comparison but i think there's so much more to it Yes, I have. Sorry, this has been very uh, like weighing on my mind a lot. Um, first, I want to use a term that Katie used at the very beginning of the episode, and that is proto-brutalism, because these buildings are the reason it's proto-brutalist you know, like is these buildings are still classical buildings. There is traditional ornamentation on them. They're they're beautiful old like Eastern European towns tall buildings with all the beautiful like floral work and acanthus leaves like worked in like worked into them particularly at the top at the base it's all cement and they're old and they're they aren't they haven't been well kept and they fall into disrepair so they've been drained of their color they've been drained of their life much like these people well, it's like it's seeping all out of them. Yeah. Like it's mm -hmm. drained out of the buildings into the people and they can't bear it. So it's squelching out of Isabella Johnny in the U-Bahn. And, and it's a psychic energy. Like you, you see the way that the, the creature, like as it's forming, like almost operates as like a nexus. Like when, when the people come upon it, they don't just revile in fear. They even have an existential breakdown in like what they're seeing. It, it is like a psychological like almost like psychic they go they enter like a psychosis like they, mm -hmm. they start they start battling it causes heinrich to go temporarily blind yeah. when he first yeah. sees it mm -hmm. and, and blinds him and yeah I, I i find that fascinating that aspect of of doppelgangers i i i adore because this this film could almost i think it it it, it has so much more to say than than like like the the science fiction like realm that it, it lives in this film could exist in the same world as pod people, like the 1970s pod people. 
Like this could be like invasion the, of the body invasion snatchers. Invasion of the body snatchers. Exactly. This like is this. the pod people. This is sorry. That's us. Uh, uh, that's every, us. Every, and, and of course, by proxy, everything is pod. This people, movie so. could exist in the same world as we do because it does. I want it uh, to exist damn. in the original invasion of the body snatchers world. Ooh, Wouldn't with, that the, be crazy if plastic. it's like the 1950s and it's the, like the in the wake of an atomic blast? The people of a town go insane, and this is how they act. And they yeah. all spawn sex beasts. <laughs> oh my god! But, but that's, that's what I'm saying. Though, Let's make it, guys. Is that <laughs> we're we're seeing that same like quiet invasion? We're seeing that that same psychic tyranny of of this like external force that just is you. Like it is your 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 spouse. It is it is it can be anyone. I love it because this this film's focus is not on like the xenophobic nature of it. it its focus is on like relationships and building walls and breaking them, which is why I, I and I, I very much so appreciate it for that. But like it could exist in that invasion of the body snatchers world. It could be the same invasion essentially, and even like the way that the creature like spawns and replicates itself is not too dissimilar. Yeah, we we see that in the school teacher. What's neat here is that the doppelgangers do almost act better than the originals uh and that's sort of i think the key difference is like in uh body mm. snatchers they make like pig squeal noises and are, are very othery but but here like the the, the doppelgangers are the thing that makes them scary is they're better than you they're um, the ideal yeah. of you yeah, they're, exactly. the, yeah, they're the they're the immortal of you because they're what's born out of the loss of faith in the previous the original. Exist- or the, the original or yeah. the I, I wonder if it's like an opening of the flesh too because i feel like at the end when you've got sam neill and isabella johnny on the stairs it's like the last confirmation of their material bodies as yeah. themselves and they've put their bodies through the rigors for the entirety of the film so that they're completely exhausted of what their bodies can do at that point like Sam Neill has struggled his way all the way up those stairs and she's just suffered a massive wound. Like they're going to die. And then there are these like miraculous sinister images are are what remain of them. Yeah. Green eyed doppelgangers. Probably perpetually erect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean what, what I've, what I find so so interesting about that is that like what created the the Isabella Johnny doppelganger right because like she just shows she's the school teacher she's Bob's school teacher right and Sam Neill encounters her and is like what the fuck you look exactly like my wife you have a wig on right he thinks he thinks it is his wife in a wig and like we see that the the horrible tentacled sex monster when it's finished with its transformation you know it is a doppelganger of Sam Neill with green eyes just like the school teacher is Isabella Johnny with green eyes so that creature was born out of her loss of faith in Sam Neill she says i what i miscarried in that in that tunnel was sister faith right like she's she's forcefully expelling her faith from her body and it gives birth to this horrible uh lovecraftian monster that then becomes an idealized sam neil you know so 
was the school teacher created the same way like what is what where does she where has she come from you know that's something that i i find uh fascinating but i don't have an answer i have some thoughts on that please so at the beginning she is is telling him like yeah go ahead and hate me i'm all bad right she's like Mm -hmm. and after that I kind of wondered if that was like the symbolic split, right? Between his ability to idealize and demonize her. Because he says at some point after that, I think all these horrible things about you basically, but when I see you, they all go away. And then he meets the school teacher and that sort of starts to, to devolve. Right. And then at some point, not too long after that, he says to her, like, I I see you as vulgar now. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, I wonder if it's like the opposite process almost like she's already demonized him. She has this like doppelganger of him that is grotesque. And then he has this split with her and he's got like the grotesque. That she's the grotesque. The immediately subservient, the immediately game for however much absence. Like, go ahead and get the kid out of the tub you got here three seconds ago. Right. (laughs) Okay, sure. I'll do whatever you... I'm just going to assume that these are the things that you want me to do, and I'm only going to do those things. It's so terrifying to me. (laughs) It's so terrifying. Like It's almost like the creation of the mask. It's like he, he's made almost a comfort item for himself, right? That, um, <gasps> An imagination-created sex toy, but yeah, that walks and talks and has like a and he doesn't like even a want to have sex with her. Yeah, yeah he just he just wants yeah. that comfort. He just wants like the essence of what she meant to him in the relationship. Poor Sam Neil just wants to be loved. I have no idea what to make of it, but I was really like fascinated by the part and have been at where she's talking to him about. Like how he sees I as me. I think that's what she says. I'm sure there's something relevant there, but I don't have any yeah. idea what it is. There's a lot of this movie <laughs> that I, I still don't know what I, what to make of. It's I, dense. I really need to go back and watch that revolving business scene um, mm. again because uh, there are a number of elements that that. Uh, do I mean the movie concludes with the man with the pink socks? Yes, I was wondering what you guys that thought about that. Scene. Yeah. Um, what I, you made of the man with the pink socks? I, I tend to wonder. We don't know what this company is that Sam Neill is working for, what it does, or what it means. We're given some very vague details on what he's doing with. The, he had a. It seems a person it, he was tracking, or he was doing some. Sort it of seems espionage, espionage and yeah. it is during the Cold War. Yeah, so, so we, like, we can assume a many, you know, some things. Yeah, well, that. I mean, I I've always read it as that Sam Neill is like a secret agent. <laughs> or something, yeah, you know, yeah. he's What's... he's got that kind of vibe. Well, I mean, he knows how to, like, later on when he kills Heinrich, he knows how to set that up to make it look like an accident. Like, like boom. He, like, yeah, yeah he, right he knows, like, intuitively. And that's... He goes to the trash and sees a feather and a shoe. And it's and like, he's like, and he's he like, immediately yeah, okay. gags himself. <laughs> yes. like, holy yeah. shit. He so, immediately <laughs> tickles his throat with the feather. Yeah, right? He's probably the exact spot, too. He's like James Bond. He's like yeah. a weird, he's like weird manic James <laughs> Bond. Hot is... Australian James Bond. One of my <laughs> New Zealandish. <laughs> one of my He's not a New Zealander. Sam Neill? Yeah, is he? Uh-huh. No. Yeah. Really? 
Yeah. Honestly, slight tangent. Sam Neill has maybe the most wholesome Twitter presence of any celebrity right now. He has a vineyard in New Zealand where he grows where he grows grapes for wine, and his whole Twitter is just like videos of him hanging out with like his aunt, his farm animals that he's all named after like his friend, his acting friends. He's a gentleman. He has has a duck named Laura Dern. He there's he has a a sheep named. Jeff Goldblum, Stop. like yeah, it's just he is his his online presence is so wholesome, Amazing. and it's so it's so funny to like think of who Sam Neill is in real life as a person as just like this you know perfectly sweet, kind gentleman as compared to like who he is in this movie. So this I'm... like absolute like maniac. I was so happy to hear that he was cast in this film because of his work in My Brilliant Career, which I recently watched. I watched this film, and originally they were going to cast Judy Davis, who's the actress in My Brilliant Career, in Isabella Johnny's role, because they weren't able to get Isabella Johnny. It was only on, like, a second or third try that Johnny signed on. Oh, well, thank God they got her. Well, when she watched the film for the first time, she wanted to commit suicide. Like, she may even have tried to commit suicide after watching the film for the first time. So this is, like, an experience for her. I mean, I can imagine. But Sam Neill is the one that they eventually cast, and oh my god, he's so incredibly romantic in that film. And that film made me cry that it was like a perfect palate cleanser, like balanced (laughs) (laughs) And then in this, he's just like a, a jealous conniving monster. Oh my god, he's so pushy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said before we started recording, it's like (laughs) he gives a sort of proto-Nick Cage kind of performance Mm. where it's so exaggerated and turned up and he's giving it a hundred ten percent. Contempo cage. It's so yeah. it's so funny that like the most common like pop culture conception of Sam Neill is uh is Jurassic Park. Mm. And then My it's first like love. And I mean, don't get me wrong, that movie is amazing. It holds and up, it's incredible. And holds up yeah. and he's great in it. But like ever since I saw this movie this is what I think of when I think of Sam Neill. Because I think it's yeah. like, you. I don't know how you can't. Yeah. This and In the Mouth of Madness. And In the Mouth of Madness, which yeah. we have to cover so soon. Yeah. Right. Love, that mo- love that movie. So to return to the scene, he's, he's talking to these, like, they're like this, like, agent council or whatever. But what I love is we get another piece of parallel dialogue. Because the majority of the sequence is about him trying to eject himself from the mission. From the scenario, he has completed his last one, and they're you know being conniving Bond villains and making a point about oh, but what about the next one? You know, mm-hmm. and he's saying no, I have a replacement ready, mm. and he's talking about his replacement, and how cool is that, right? Yes. Like mm. it's a it's a really neat parallel. Well, and he's like, try he's refusing the mission because he knows that he needs to go home to try to save his marriage, which is falling apart. But she's already got a replacement for him (laughs) at home. Exactly. And, uh, and the film inevitably too, like it, it it ends with like him almost like going along with it. Like he, he becomes complicit, like in this replacement, the same, the same as her. Like, 
uh, you know, which was her, her fear. Of- Maybe it's like a projection of the mutual love between the character and the creature. Because I feel like her replicant or whatever happens first. Because you see her in the teacher character. And yeah. She comes in pretty early in the film. I wonder if it's that intercourse with the creature, however embryonic, is what brings it into being. And maybe she gave birth to it a while ago, and like each one of these... Because I'm thinking she has multiple of these wild, uh, either abortion or birth situations with all of the milky, bloody, you know, in the in the U-Bahn where she's swinging the milk around. Unbelievable scene, yeah. Um, Unbelievable scene. Well, this poses a question. In this world, is there an alien Heinrich? Mm. <laughs> Heinrich is the alien yeah. Heinrich. Yeah, let's be real. Like, Heinrich is already perfect. You can't, the ideal you can't European form. He is right the there. ideal. Uh, he is the ideal funky beats. Shulowski uh, uh, calls him the dumbest character in the film. I mean, he is, but it's the best because of that. Yeah, like it's it's a fool. Everything he's talking about is total nonsense. He's also like, incredibly he's, suave. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He sounds like a like a PhD candidate. He's like yes. writing a very postmodern artist statement every time he opens his mouth. It's fantastic. And all those books on the shelves in he and his mom's house. Yeah. <laughs> We're on that... three sides of the same pond. <laughs> oh, yeah. the middle. You're, you're a mountain and I am a lake. We're all trying to swim in the lake. It's like, what the fuck? Like, I love it. Right, like we're the situation trying to be able we to find ourselves in is like swimming in the same lake, but from different sides. <laughs> there was what the a fuck. Are you talking oh, yes. about? It's like a lake. Like, come on, man. And it's so. And like at that point, like Sam Neil is getting so mad. He says, like, "Let's be again, open like, with each other." Let's be open with each other. I do have one question I must ask. When you came home to visit, were you satisfied with your wife's <laughs> Because around that time, we We've reached a state. Perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. <laughs> it's like, shut up! Shut up! I'm a fucking freak. <laughs> He's so good. I, I love how I honest love that is, though. Boy. A state of perfect harmony. I've thought that before. It's like, yeah, when you came when you came home to came home from work, like, was the sex with your wife good? Because we were. Oh man! So let's let's uh, let's go back to his his unfortunate demise. Um, oh, to say that of scenes I've seen in movies, like none have like conjured like these such similar imagery. Gravity's rainbow is like like murdering him and like that that stall. There, I don't know, like yeah, that that whole idea of just like like that seedy bar and. <laughs> The, the way, like, he's he's still, like, pontificating before, like, Samuel kills him and all the rest of it. Like, this this movie and, like, Pynchon have, like, a like a lot of similarities. I don't know. Like, I was really, I was really feeling, like, like Gravity's Rainbow during that, that whole, that whole murder sequence. Because there's a lot of stuff in, in that about, like, like the, the rising septic tide and, you know, all that stuff. And, mm. uh... Drowns Heinrich in a toilet. Yep. Rest in piss. Rest in piss. But uh, yeah, I, I love it too. So cruel. It's Sam Neill, the way like like a like a, like a, it's so predatory when he, uh, he he grabs the shoe and the feather and he goes into the stall 
and he puts he tickles his mouth with a feather to to get Heinrich's attention to say like oh hey I'm I'm gagging I'm being ill and Heinrich is this whole time he's been vomiting in the sink because he just saw a Lovecraftian beast and Isabella like, Johnny did stab him yeah, and he's yeah, been like stabbed. he's been stabbed yeah um, I, I do love that you think he's been stabbed in the heart but it's really the armpit yeah that's great like um uh and it's never said like it's just shown uh but like yeah he's so he's busy like holding his wound, vomiting into a sink, and then Sam Neill, the, the predator fuck that he is, makes himself gag in the other room. He's like, help me. He's like, I'm oh, like, Heinrich, I'm sick. <laughs> and, and <what> <laughs> help me. He's like, I'm, I'm the one who's injured. I'm the one who's Oh my god! It's so good. So quotable that guy. And yeah, and then of course he, you know, he goes into the stall and uh, Samuel murders him and and frames it as a a, a drug induced, you know, accidental suicide. And uh, uh, yeah, wow, what a what a sequence. Um, I had one other like physical like piece of duality I I caught in the movie, and that is um, when Sam Neill comes home uh, during the 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 affirmation or the the scene we we, we talked about previously where uh Samuel comes home to find Bob alone in the house for god knows how long you know yeah. he's got jam smeared mm. on his face and the rest and oh, Samuel yeah. goes to clean him up and what he does is Samuel is uh uh Sam kneels and is on the ground <laughs> uh and he he pulls up his son's shirt and he he feels his ribs and there's a shot that's up and behind uh, Bob looking at Sam Neill with his hands up over over his ribs and he's he's feeling them, and we see the same scene mirrored at the end of the film. Yeah. Isabella um, holds Sam Neill the same way mm-hmm. by his ribs. And well, she, he, he holds, he holds her like that yeah, yeah, when, yeah. when she comes yeah. back, and they kind of reconcile at first, where he like. Puts her to bed. There's exact that, same shot. The shots exactly same the same. Lighting, yeah. Same exact same he framing. Holds her the same, yeah. In the one where she does it to him, though, it was very like to me reminiscent of the crucifixion perspective. Like mm. he's got his mm. arms out. That, yeah. The, that crucifixion. Uh, the, the scene where uh, Isabel Johnny is uh, looking at uh, the the wooden Christ. Like that scene is so wild. Like leading up to the. The tunnel. Yeah, um, the the miscarriage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, because like I, I what was because like uh, it, it's it's a good it's a good like two three minutes of of her staring staring up at like this crucifixion. What a beautiful just, angle! How and, often yeah. do you get to see that in film? Looking down on someone like that, like a god's eye view. She's letting you judge her. It's so hot and. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, teach their own. Uh, I don't. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, well, I, 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 I'm not talking about like objectifying Isabella Johnny as much as I'm talking about like having access to someone's private world. It feels like I'm totally there with her, and like I've totally been where she's at, and that simultaneous like clinging to the concept of faith, yeah. while also permitting that invasion of chance and that's what her monologue is about is that that bizarre juxtaposition and the imbalance that occurs between those qualities where she's trying to optimize her faith and still make it a vital thing so it's not static so she has to allow chance in but then it's all chaos 
and things start to fall apart. I thought that that was an interesting juxtaposition, that initial emphasis that Sam Neill's character places on order when he's trying to get her to stay. Like, why can't you just have an orderly family existence? Like, why can't there be order for our son? You know, like, get your shit together and stop doing this crazy shit so that we can do what normal people do. Right, so we can have our normal-ass family. Right, right. right. But he's just come from over the wall, and he's got this shadowy vocation. I wonder if it's like, there's no way I can maintain this quality of life unless I have this person to be dependent on. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no way I can perpetuate this the way I want to, unless she'll stay. I gotta have something normal to come home to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want it my way. I'm really curious, um, like, what you make of the man in the pink sock still, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, my guess is, I almost don't want this, because it, it puts too much of, like, a, a bow on the movie, like, more of a bow than I think, like, the movie should have, because so much of the film is about mess. But you could tie, I think, this whole film together. And again, too, like, I think it... This this film transcends, like, science fiction. It's just using science fiction as a metaphor. It brings the science fiction back in, in ways I don't necessarily like. But the, the agency, or whatever this organization was is responsible for these doppelgangers. Ooh, no, I don't it, like... Almost that. like a... Yeah, that is what I'm saying. Like, like, but, but the man with the pink socks at the end kind of implies that, like, in a way. It's uh, almost a blue rose type of case. <laughs> right yeah, right. Like, it's like, yeah, Twin Peaksy, right. Uh, the man with the, the pink socks is just, uh, you know, Gordon or... Or Mr. C. <laughs> I don't know if you, went, if you got that far, but... We did. Um, nice. The pink socks guy is part of the organization that is trying to stop these events from occurring and the organization that Sam Neill was a part of is the one that was put in place. And that, that whole council of guys were all, you know, like doppelgangers or something. You know, I'm not sure if we can well, I think what the their guy... eyes look like, but... Um... Mm. I think the guy with the pink socks is one of those guys from the beginning. Like, it is one of... It is mm-hmm. one of the ones who is questioning Yeah, it's him. like the tall guy. Oh. Yeah. Which is why the pink socks is confusing, because the last question they ask him is, does our target or does our client or whoever still wear pink socks? I totally missed that. And so, like, to then see one of those guys at the end and make a point of showing us that he's wearing pink socks, yeah, I... Doppelganger, right? If anything, that would... would... Further cement it could that, be that like they're they're trying to track down this doppelganger that they made accidentally or something else, and you know Samuel hasn't found them yet, but he's found all the leads. He did all the things he was hired to do, and uh, you know that they just need to track down this man with the pink socks, who is probably maybe the first doppelganger or the big one. Ooh man, and, and I, I I honestly don't like that. I don't like that. I, I hope it's just open ended and. It makes my brain itch a little bit. Like, right. Yeah. Well, it's, so much of what makes this movie great is the frame and not the painting. I don't know. Like, it, it, it's too much painting. It's a metaphor. The, like, the, the movie, I think, is at its best when it's metaphor. And so, yeah, like, I'm, I'm happy to leave it there. But yeah, that's that's my, what I, I think maybe it's trying to say. Um, I would go maybe, maybe more too much frame for a painting that transcends the frame. So, for me... 
like that's better. I I can see there being like a a resonance and a concentric circles kind of way between the events, um, and there may be being some connection between his involvement with that group and the ultra natural events that happen because they're not really they don't feel supernatural they feel like very embodied to me like there's something that's um that's tangible and inevitable about there being a physical creature and these actual events happening while there's all these psychic energies flying around at the same time I think that is almost like being tempted to a reducto ad absurdum where it's like, well, everyone's just going to end up like a replicant, like invasion of the body snatchers, where it's where it's like a a disease that's catching. But I don't know that there's a similarity of motivation there that connects them enough for me. I, I mean, I definitely see how they feel like part of the same world. And that maybe there would be a correspondence, but I don't know that that's necessarily part of the story world yet. Whether it's like a thematic tie or... Right. Well, sort of speaking of their origin, I was kind of, when you were talking about the discussion of faith, I was wondering if anyone else thought that it was possible that she was saying that the sex beast doppelganger was an embodiment of her faith. I think it was everything that she loved about Sam Neill. Like it's, I think it speaks to her actually having a connection with him, that that is the form that it would ultimately take. Because so is that like an essential element to it forming that couldn't possibly create a replicant in another way? Yeah. I think that that checks out like that. Maybe she's constructed the idealized version of him the same way he may be have been constructing the idealized version of her at the same time. I feel like the teacher character is not fully fleshed out at the beginning. She becomes gradually more and more through the film, mm-hmm. more of what he's looking for. This like very reduced functional attache he, to yeah, his he, existence. Like, projects onto her what mm-hmm. he needs. And she's doing the same thing with him. Exactly. And what yeah. she needs down her is name on a piece of paper, right? Gives it to him, and we never see that. Is that right? Yeah, that's okay. right. That's one of my favorite character moments in the movie. Like it says so much about Sam Neill. He, I mean, he is so distraught, and he's just so ready for this person to just show up in his life and fix everything, and to just to be this like subservient creature that he. Like he he's he is intimate with her. Like she she starts like acting as like a mother for his child, like raising him. It cleans up the horrible mess that he's made without any question or anything. And he or any request. Asks her her name. Mm-hmm. She just hands it to him on a piece of paper after all of that, and he's just like, "What's this piece of paper? It's my name." And and <laughs> and, that, and that she just yes. and that she finds the most polite way. To, like, inject mm-hmm. that, like, just just as, like, she just views it as, like, a piece of data this person needs to see. As opposed to, like, a- any kind of human behavior. Wild. Like, that that whole sequence, like, blew my mind. He's so gone at that point. He just takes it in. He's he's so, well, so played like a puppet that, yeah, he just, he just takes the piece of paper and just like, okay, cool. 
And that, yeah, and that also he never bothered to even think about. He's like, so thirsty, he'll drink a, from any well, it doesn't even matter. She's a new mom, that's all he cares about. I like the the juxtaposition of that her as this like beautiful and idealized version of Anna's character, like the cleaned up Anna, while her refraction of him and what she's not getting out of him is just like a sex creature. I don't care what yeah. else you bring to the table, really. All you're going to do like, is be up. tired in the day and fuck me all night. And that's what you are. <laughs> Show up and fuck me. Just do that. <laughs> Just make me happy that way. Yeah. And sh I like that it portrays her as this character who can't get that from this normal human relationship. She can't get it out of her husband. She tries to have a lover and has, what was it? Perfect harmony? Yeah. And that's still harmony. not yeah. exactly right. So I feel like maybe she's learning a little bit about herself in the marriage, and then she's learning a little bit more about herself in this dynamic with the lover for well, the year. That yeah, she's I think she like, and, retreats into herself. I think the introduction yeah. of Heinrich is like essential to the creation of the the sex creature because we see from his tape, you know, where she has that monologue that like it is around that same time that she really starts to lose her faith in Sam Neill. It's like that the introduction of this affair, of this new lover, sort of like plants that seed in her mind that she can have more than what Sam Neill is giving her. And even so, Heinrich doesn't end up being enough, but it's like it's it's at that same time that she has her crisis of faith and miscarries yeah, her faith like, in the tunnel a and awakens mother in her. Right, yes. exactly. Like she can give birth to something that is so it's like, satisfying in a way that she didn't even realize was possible. But the affair mm. with Heinrich was essential to make her realize that that was something possible. Yeah, I think that right, she yes. she she didn't think about that before she you know started cheating on Sam Neill. Initially. I love that. Yeah. I mean, we've only really scratched the surface of this thing, but we've been recording for a while already. Do you want to rate this thing? Yeah. I think the one last bit that I wanted to mention really quickly is the music. I think the music Ooh, yes. is mm. awesome in this movie. Yes. Uh, it's so minimal, yeah. but tactile at the same time. Mm. You have kind of clinking sounds and very, very simple you know, melody lines that are repeated over and over. But more than anything, you have loud banging that just repeats. <laughs> Very industrial, and yeah. And it, it works so well to, you know, add to the, the atmosphere of this film. Well, and I love how the music cuts abruptly with scene changes. Like, usually music will, like, carry over to, like, help transition into a scene. But there's so many times where there's, like really like the music is really going it's really pumping and then it just smash cuts to a different scene and the music is just gone it's like oh, the music it's, was over there we're here now right and now we're here yeah it's just like it's so it's so disorienting in like such a a, a great way that's like ah we're somewhere else now you know 
yeah, I do I do want to rate this thing and wrap up because it would be easy to talk about it all night. Like I said, there's a hundred percent. there's there's so much uh in in this film and if uh our listeners who haven't seen it have stuck around this long and are not completely confused and, and driven <laughs> away, uh I mean, yeah, definitely check this movie out for yourself because there's a lot to be gained and uh And if you've seen it, watch it again. Watch it again. Yeah, I still feel like there's a lot of shit in this movie that I don't understand, even having seen it multiple times. It's just Eraserhead head in color. Yeah, it's just Eraserhead head in color. <laughs> I actually really liked that, though, because like, it, it, there are a lot of parallels. Like, well, know, and yeah. I don't just mean in the, the visage of like light in its wave-like form hitting your eyeballs from a film still. It, it's... It's Eraserhead in color because it's Eraserhead the film as if color could be a part of that world and fill it out in all those even further nuanced ways. Like Eraserhead is is like the 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 seed. It's like the the most fundamental substance splayed out in black and white. It's an ink illustration and this is like the oil painting of the same story. I think a, a kernel of definitely a, a similar source of anxiety. They both have weird babies. To say the least. To say the damn least. Um, and also, one, one other final point for me uh, when it comes to some weird babies uh, is uh, the grotesque creatures. Uh, the creature um, and its its designs and the uh, the use of lighting. Uh, in this film, and I think why those sequences work so well is, uh, and, and not just those scenes, but like the close-ups of people's faces, like the the colors are are really uh, the tone is like really compressed, and like the uh, dark objects are just swallowed in shadow. Like mm-hmm. when you see like people's faces, like they're just they're just eaten by like darkness. Um, and same with the creature. So you only get these like glimmering, like shining bits of light and those have detail on them and the rest is just swallowed and it's that chiaroscuro that you get in like caravaggio paintings where it's Mm. just like it's like flashes of lightning you know what's neat about like like his paintings is like he would use like lanterns in different places to light different figures and paint them separately so there's like revolving and moving light in his paintings like each figure like the light like travels across them and it's what makes it feel like they're scenes lit by like a lightning bolt, and like Scorsese, like like used it for Taxi Driver as well, and and you know like it's around the same time, and you you really feel it like like on on film mm. uh, in in ways that like digital can't capture. Uh, the the I my, my mind goes back two episodes to that off god awful uh, Dawn of the Dead remake, uh, <laughs> and like where they they tried to do the same thing by like digitally compressing the colors and it's oh they were so trying to do nasty. anything oh. yeah they were just putting the sliders at full to maximize the sales but anyway enough about, enough about that uh, but <clears throat> the uh, here yeah like just having these shadows swallowed up and I I know from trying to like paint my own like horrifying monsters and creatures and like studying Caravaggio that like to do that, you you have to make the whole thing. When I paint like a like a terrible monster uh, that's coming out of the shadows, the artist still has to build the whole thing. You still have to map it all out. You still have to get all the the anatomy like placed and built and constructed and the rest of the scene. And 
then only then can you can you swallow it like and you can you lose the form and it's uh uh the the terms often used like is called sfumato which is just like italian for smoke uh, or fog and lightning where like you you find the form and lose the form and find the form and lose the form and it's just deciding really when you found it when you lost it mm. uh and you, you can call it at any point really but uh here, you know that these creatures, like like the ones that are displayed early on, which are barely seen, are fully made. Like, mm-hmm. and you, you mm-hmm. know, you know that whatever else we can't see that is swallowed in the shadows, it's there. Just, and you can just feel it. Like, it's not just a, like, the, the puppet doesn't end at the torso. Like, the creature that we first see standing in the corner does not end at the torso. There is more. Mm. that was made that was crafted that we don't have to see and that that's rare that's like because so often films get that wrong and they want to show you all the stuff that their their production design made but it's best if you make it and don't show all of it and that's that's magic like and that's where the the monster becomes a part of reality like when you have parts of it that you make and don't show and it, it becomes larger than just what you're capturing. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's it for me. That was a really good monster, y'all. I really like that. Was a really good it's one. a good monster. Yeah, that was a good one. That was good. But yeah, you really felt. You really feel it. Like in the textures, it, it's incredible. Like and just just horrifying. I love it. Uh. All right. Uh. It's a five out of five for me. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's obvious that it's a five out of five yeah. here as well. How could it not be? Uh. Yeah. Easy. Easy five. Yeah, this is easily one of my top 20 movies of all time. Five out of five. I'm gonna fuck the air with this one, like Zulowski told Isabella Johnny to do in that scene, (laughs) and say five out of five on the basis that Zulowski gave me what I want when I watch a movie. What I really want. Every time I've ever really wanted to watch a movie and just that when he called it a pretext for thinking people to think i felt like um that he understood the gift that he gave me and i think to be able to bear that and not be pretentious and not be unnecessary and be um fully expressive that is just that is the gift um so yeah five out of five for me too well, it's unanimous. Possession is a golden pod. Five out of five across the board. If you haven't seen it, do so. That'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, next week, it's Cleveland's pick. I think it's Blue Velvet, right? It is definitely Blue Velvet. All right. We're watching some Blue Velvet. Because We're I... returning to Lynch. Well, uh, uh, at this point, it's a theme. But guess what? Haven't seen it before. So <laughs> yeah. uh, it's time. After you, you beautiful folk exposed me to Eraserhead and Twin Peaks and the rest, I, I'm just, I'm on a big old Lynch kick, and I, I, I want to pace it because I know I'm. I, at this point, I know, you know, like I've seen enough to, to understand Enjoy the why, ride, I'm, why man, I'm here yeah. and why I want to see these movies. So I'm trying to pace them out, you know, and just really get the best of them. But I, I just, I'd really hate to get like hit by a bus and not have seen all of them. So, like, I, I'm trying to get the timing right on these, but, like, we gotta, gotta get another David Lynch in. So, yeah, it's, it's Blue Velvet. We're starting from, we're starting, 
I think it's, yeah, in, in progression, I think it's the next one I need to see, so that's what we're going to do. I think it's the logical next step in your David Lynch journey. We don't want to throw you in the deep end of Inland Empire right away. Not no, yet. No, Christ. We want to He's ease not ready you into that. Um, so I think I'm ready, I'm ready the logical next step. I should take a big old blue velvet is dip a dog. In the, in the yeah, yeah, pool. yeah. No, you're gonna there. you're gonna have a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. blue velvet's great. It, there, there's no, there is nothing but fun in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, tune in next week to hear our, our episode on blue velvet. Until then, if you like the show and you like our guests, and how could you not? Then uh, I think you should head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a five stars. And a nice review. Uh, five stars. Uh, this, this, <laughs> and a nice review. This episode was brought to you by Reinhold's Smashable Milk. You, you, gotta, you gotta smash some milk, get, get Reinhold's. Sometimes you gotta do it. Yep, just hold that Reinhold and, and smash it. Uh, but, like that like button. But, or but we use or five stars. But besides milk, if you're already a fan of the film, Mondo Vision released some really excellent, excellent Blu-rays. There's a $40 one that doesn't have a bunch of extras. There's a $70 to $80 one uh, that has some really amazing special features, a beautiful velvet box. Um, and Mondo Vision has those at limited editions. So once once all of those sell out, that's... That's your OOP, baby, but definitely worth it. It's a really amazing transfer and great work by Daniel Bird. Well, for more great work by not Daniel Bird, you can follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod and at Letterboxd.com slash PodPeoplePod, where you'll find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those episodes. And uh, you'll also uh, you can also check out the the Golden Pods list on Letterbox as well, where Possession is now chilling with its homies. Um, I'm on Twitter at some spooky snake. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. And occasionally, well, actually, pretty regularly these days, tweeting for Light Arc Studios. We further progress on its stairs back because you know, uh, like we talked about last week. We just put out Tower Call, which was this whole new chapter for the game that's like twice the content that we originally had. It's like four hours of gameplay with, dig this, Cthulhu Knights in it. I did some gurgly, watery vocals for it. It's pretty rad. You should check it out. Tentacled Sex Beasts. Yes, just like this, Just like <laughs> this movie. Yeah, it's true. Uh, We've I, got them. Uh, well, <laughs> my art, no. But, uh, the, uh... Yeah, and also, uh, uh, speaking of uh, tentacles, you, you looking for someone to draw you a tentacled sex piece? Uh, don't ask me on ArtStation. Uh, uh, there you go. I, I, I will draw your creatures, but probably not that. I I can afford to have standards now, and it's good to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe not. I don't know. Depends depends on the context. Anyway. With the um, right price. With the right price, uh, you know, I might. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying no, but I'm, I'm, it's not really what I want to be known for. But anyway, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's all. Oh, also DreadX uh, Collection The Hunt. Check that out, too. Also also working on that. And okay, that, that's it for me. You can find me on Instagram and Letterboxd at Cyclone78. And if you want to look at my nature pictures or read my movie reviews, hunt me down. 
For those of you who want a little bit more pornography, you can follow me at <laughs> Lambly Optic on Instagram. All you Instagrammers, find me for fun stories and strange artworks. It is a dope Instagram. I'm just oh, saying. Oh, thanks. It rules. I love your Instagram. Hold up. I, I just want you to clarify where people can go if they want to commission you. Oh, Art Station? Art Station. Yeah. Cleveland Mosher. That's it? All right. Just search me. I'm there. All right, cool. Katie and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's been a pleasure having you as always, and you're welcome back anytime. Um, you always bring such wonderful <laughs> insights to our dumb podcast. Thank um, <laughs> So Thanks uh, for having us. To our lovely listeners, come back next week to hear another dose of weirdness with our uh, Blue Velvet review. And uh, until next time, I think I could go for a tall glass of milk. (laughs) 